So this is going to be a nasty, nasty uh, day, two days. Do what you need to do to stay safe. Yes, please do, Florida. Do what you got to do. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. And yes, we stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets, even during hurricanes, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, stay safe, Nicole. Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. And as uh, we have been discussing the last day or two, uh, we have been very concerned about what's about to go on, what is now going on in Florida. Before we get there, it has been a rough 12 to 24 hours or so for Cuba after Hurricane Ian made landfall in western Cuba on Tuesday night as a Category 3 storm, knocking out power eventually to the entire island. Cuba's electric union said in a statement that work was underway to gradually restore service to the country's 11 million people. That after power was initially knocked out to about one million in the western provinces of the island, but later the entire grid collapsed from the uh, from the strength of Hurricane Ian. Our infrastructure is simply not ready for these extreme weather events. And just to be clear, when you say our infrastructure, in this case, it was Cuba's infrastructure, but I think you mean everybody's. Yes, Yes. infrastructure is not. Thank you. Yes. The uh, U.S. National Hurricane Center said that Cuba suffered, quote, significant wind and storm surge impacts when the storm struck with top sustained winds of 125 miles per hour. That, just a week or two after Hurricane Fiona did the same thing to Puerto Rico, knocking out power across that entire island, underscoring Desi's point about our... Uh, Rickety? Uh, yeah. Unprepared? Yeah. Not resilient? Correct. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, yeah. In Puerto Rico, it was 3 million American residents who uh, are, many of them, still struggling to restore power and find clean uh, drinking water there. As our cruel climate crisis summer continues into fall... I think we're in fall now. 
correct? Are Officially, we in fall now? Yes, yes right. we are. Uh, as we go to air today, Hurricane Ian, uh, after slamming Cuba overnight, has just made landfall not long ago along the southwestern coast of Florida near Cayo Costa, a barrier island sort of just north of Fort Myers and Cape Coral as one of the strongest hurricanes ever to make landfall on the west coast of Florida. It came ashore on the barrier island as a nearly Category 5. It was officially a Cat 4, but just a couple of miles per hour short of a Cat 5. So a virtual Cat 5 at that point. In any event, while the category system measures sustained wind speed, the potentially worst danger of this storm has always been the storm surge and the enormous, enormous amount of rain to go with it as this storm is currently predicted to slowly move across and up the state of Florida in a northeasterly pattern affecting a lot of the state before it emerges in the Atlantic Ocean as a tropical storm that will then move up the coast and potentially make landfall a second time as a tropical storm in Georgia and or the Carolinas on Thursday and or Friday. So there's a long way to go here as folks are hopefully hunkering down at this hour or for the next many hours, frankly, in Florida. I want to toss it to Desi in a moment, but I will note what, what I'll call a couple of encouraging, slightly encouraging points, if we can call them that. The uh, storm is barreling ashore somewhat south of Tampa, which, as we've discussed on this show, had there been a direct hit on Tampa, that was considered a sort of absolute worst case scenario for this storm, given the geography and the danger of storm surge in the Tampa Bay area, which has not had a direct hit with the hurricane in about 100 years. And so in the meantime, they have since built up a lot of densely populated uh, development, residential development that would have been very much in harm's way. So you could say, in a way, so far, it does appear maybe Tampa dodged a bullet. Uh, maybe, maybe, yes. That's uh, preliminary. At least the worst case scenario for the state of Florida. Yeah. We will see. There's a long way to go still on the storm. Also, I will call it a good thing of sorts uh, that the storm is coming ashore during daylight hours for now, making it in some ways, I think, much less scary for residents who can yes. at least sort of see what is coming and what they are being hit with as someone who has been in, uh, you know, at night in, in tornado warnings, not knowing what is out there is really, really frightening. Yes. My sister lived through Hurricane Ike in 2008 in Texas, and she said sheltering in place in the middle of a storm like that at night is terrifying. Other than that, not much good to say about this storm, Hurricane Ian, uh, soon to be, uh, hopefully soon to be Tropical Storm Ian, though that's not going to make it any better when it comes to rainfall. Uh, so not much more good to say at this hour. But Des, I know you've been following this storm closely. 
Yes. So first of all, Hurricane Ian is now tied with Hurricane Charlie back in 2004 as the strongest storm to make landfall on the West Coast in the Florida Peninsula. Uh, And both of those storms hit the coast at 150 mile per hour winds. And Ian, as you mentioned, did drop slightly at landfall to a lower wind speed, which, you know, is helpful. Every little bit helps. And the storm surge has also set records for the highest water levels that have been ever observed in several locations around Fort Myers, Florida, and Naples, Florida. Uh, As we go to air, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has asked President Biden to expand the previous federal major disaster declaration to all 67 counties in the state. More than a million customers are now without power. And and let me just jump in to note that uh, President Biden immediately approved some earlier disaster emergency uh, declarations requested by the governor of Florida. I'm only saying that because there was all sorts of lies going around, uh, was it during Fiona, uh, one of the recent storms, oh, it was in Mississippi, Jackson, when they had that terrible uh, rain, that somehow President Biden did not respond immediately to the uh, request for disaster help in Mississippi. He absolutely did. Yes. Anyone who tells you otherwise is purposely trying to disinform you. Press on. Okay, so about a million customers are without power as we go to air, but of course that is expected to increase as the storm moves slowly across Florida. Um, And sadly, the Florida Collier County Sheriff's Office, it's near Naples, they said that they have received uh, reports of people trapped by deep water in their homes, Mm -hmm. and they're going to have to wait until the storm subsides a bit before they can go rescue them. Mm -hmm. Um, The National Hurricane Center says Hurricane Ian could remain a hurricane for at least another 24 hours, potentially. That's not good. And the National Weather Service has also issued tornado warnings around the state. So everybody in the path of Ian as it makes its way through its storm cycle, remember, it also spawns tornadoes. Ian broke several records. It set a new rapid intensification record for its location. There is no record of a storm this strong, strengthening at all that close to landfall, really? according to uh, weather historian Phil Klotzbach. Um, and, and that uh, would be due to the warmer waters yes, in the Gulf? Right. That is due to the warmer waters of the Gulf. If you look at the sea surface temperature maps, you can see uh, Hurricane Ian's path went over anomalously warm areas of, of ocean water in the Caribbean and in the Gulf of Mexico. How did that happen? I wonder why we have warmer <laughs> waters in the Gulf all of a sudden. It must yeah. be just a coincidence. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's that's caused by man-made climate change. Oh. It's a really bad trend to have oh. these rapidly intensifying major hurricanes right before landfall. Um, and Ian also had record intensity at landfall. It is now within the top five of hurricane landfall intensity in recorded U.S. history. That is also caused by climate change. And it also set a wind speed record. It matched Hurricane Michael in 2018 for having maximum winds above 150 miles per hour at any point this late in the calendar year. Um, And only four hurricanes have been known to make landfall in the continental United States with wind speeds that Ian had. So that's why Mm -hmm. it's in the top five now. An estimated two million people were under mandatory evacuation orders in coastal areas. But unfortunately, officials are not sure just how many actually got out ahead of the storm. They believe the vast majority of people in those mandatory evacuation zones did choose to leave. But, you know, there are a couple who were on a barrier 
island community, Gasparilla Island, who chose to stay and ride out the storm, and we do not know their fates. Um, we don't have a whole lot of storm surge data yet, but like I said, both Fort Myers and Naples have recorded all-time high, record-high water levels from Ian, and that's going to lead to massive damage costs across the entire southwest Florida coast um, because of just the number of properties that are now there, and many of them built as we have mentioned before, before modern flood codes were uh, were instituted for mm-hmm. these buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, the National Hurricane Center forecast as much to, as 12 to 18 feet of storm surge from Inglewood to Bonita Beach. And uh, it's important to remember two things. 12 to 18 feet yes, of so we're, storm surge? We're talking the roof line of homes. So hopefully people had attics or they evacuated. Um, and it's important to remember two things, that the sea level at Tampa, for example, is already a foot higher than it was during the previous major hurricane hit back in 1921. That's due to sea level rise. That's due to climate change. Mm. And remember that warm air holds more water vapor and a warmer atmosphere then has more moisture to dump as uh, rain, as this Mm -hmm. uh, storm travels across Florida and gains strength again, potentially hitting Georgia and South Carolina. And the National Weather Service warns that this is a rain and flood event that will take a while. It's expected to dump between 12 to 18 inches of rain on central and eastern Florida. Some locations could get as much as 24 inches of rain. And all that water has to go somewhere, especially as it crawls across Florida. So 12 to 18 feet of storm surge potentially and 12 to 18 inches of rain as well on much of central and northeast Florida. Uh, yes. Uh, with some uh, locations as much as 24 inches of rain. Yeah, two feet of rain. Unbelievable. So that's going to cause flooding on rivers, too. So they'll have some compound flooding from the inland rivers flowing out to the ocean and the storm surge flowing in. So uh, one more thing. Uh, President Biden at a White House event on Wednesday said FEMA is already deployed. Resources are already uh, down in Florida and spreading out as soon as the storm danger passes. He also had a warning for the oil and gas industry. Do not, let me repeat, do not, do not use this as an excuse to raise gasoline prices or gouge the American people. My experts inform me the production of only about 190,000 barrels a day has been impacted by the storm thus far. That's less than 2% of the United States daily production impacted for a very short period of time. This small temporary storm impact on oil production provides no excuse no excuse for price increases at the pump. None. If gas companies try to use this storm to raise prices at the pump, I will ask officials to look into whether price gouging is going on. America is watching. The industry should do the right thing. Oh, I'm sure they will. <laughs> I'm sure the uh, big oil will listen to uh, President Biden and not use this opportunity to gouge the American people even further. Thank you very much, Desi Doyne. Good yep. luck to everyone in Florida. We will, of course, uh, keep our eyes on that. More, no doubt, in the days ahead. For now, let's move from our ongoing cruel climate crisis summer to a hopefully less cruel fall and midterm elections. We will see. We've got some new fascinating insight on some of the polling that we have been seeing in recent weeks, but based on some actual hard data from some actual recent elections that may or may not be 
currently uh, uh, taken into account in some of this recent polling. Yes, we've got some hard data from Kansas, of all places. And if all of that sounds confusing, don't worry. We'll explain it all next when we're once again joined by Tom Bonnier of Target Smart for some smart insight on our critical upcoming midterm elections. That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Kansas. I see what you did there. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We have been long advising listeners to this program and readers at bradblog.com to ignore the so-called conventional wisdom about this year's midterm elections, to simply ignore the idea that Democrats, as history would tell us, are doomed to face a shellacking this year since the party in power during off-year elections, particularly during the first term of a presidency, and particularly when the president has low approval ratings, almost always ends up losing members in both the House and Senate. But we've been offering the advice to simply tune out that conventional wisdom since really the beginning of the year, since at least early spring, advising that these are decidedly unconventional times. That suggestion seems to have borne its way out so far as polling numbers continue to show Democrats actually gaining seats in the U.S. Senate even as the U.S. House remains an uphill battle for Democrats to maintain their current majority. At the same time, however, in every special election for the U.S. House that has taken place, matching a Democrat against a Republican since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in its infamous Dobbs decision at the end of June, Democrats have either won those races or at least improved on their performance in comparison to how well Joe Biden did in those very same districts back in 2020. That is anything but conventional in a midterm election year. Moreover, while some of the pre-election polling for several of the Senate seats that Democrats hope to flip from red to blue this year have tightened up in recent days, as expected, the closer we get to November 8. Recent polling reveals that their odds are improving. Democrats' odds are actually 
continuing to improve in the U.S. House. According to CBS News yesterday, the Republicans have a lead still in the House, but it keeps shrinking. CBS reports, based on their latest battleground tracker forecast with YouGov, that while Republicans are still in a very good position to capture a House majority, the majority looks narrower today than it ever has having ticked down for the second straight month to just 223 seats in their model's estimate. In July, Republicans were forecast to win 230 seats. In August, that slipped to 226 seats, and the latest estimate shows them winning 223 of the 218 needed to capture a majority in the lower chamber. Now, never mind the actual numbers there. The fact that the numbers are trending towards Democrats. That's sort of what I'm keeping my eye on here. And that means if any of these numbers can or should be trusted that, well, Democrats could be, at least according to CBS YouGov, just five seats away from retaining their current majority. That remains an uphill climb, no doubt, particularly since, as we have seen in the recent past, Republicans have a remarkable ability to win most, if not all, of the House seats that are seen as toss-ups by the so-called experts in this stuff. But CBS also finds that voters are very, very engaged this year, far more so than would normally be expected as per conventional wisdom. In this year's midterm elections, their interest, polling finds, goes beyond just pocketbook issues that you would expect. Two-thirds of voters, according to CBS YouGov, feel that their rights and freedoms are very much at stake in this election, more so, more so even than those who feel that their financial well-being is. And that's one of the things that is uh, normally key during midterm elections. Voters believe, for example, by a two-to-one margin that a Republican Congress would lead to women getting fewer rights and freedoms than they have now rather than more rights. By more than four to one, if Republicans win, voters think any change in rights for LGBTQ people would see them getting fewer rights rather than more. And the Democrats lead specifically on the abortion issue. That's according to this poll, and that lead continues to grow while Republicans have not grown their own support among their own voters who prioritize the economy since last month's polling. But all of these pre-election poll numbers are at best snapshots of the current mood of the electorate at this moment and otherwise essentially yeah, sort of best guesses as to what may happen in November, even as early voting is already underway now in many states. But we do have some hard data that we can actually look at that is not pr a predictive best guess as much as actual evidence of the mood of the electorate this year, at least we have that hard data in one state, one usually very conservative state that our guest today has been looking at very, very closely for what it may tell us about this year's elections. You'll recall back in early August that voters in Kansas sort of stunned the nation when they rejected in a landslide a GOP attempt in the state to change the state constitution to allow the Republicans there to restrict or ban abortion rights. That measure 
uh, lost by a huge, nearly 60-40 margin in Kansas. We spoke later that month with Tom Bonnier of the data research firm Target Smart, who had noticed what he described at the time as, quote, jaw-dropping new voter registration numbers in the state of Kansas after the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade at the Supreme Court in late June. And the vote against, essentially, banning reproductive rights in the state of Kansas. More specifically, he noticed the spike was due to what he told us on the show at the time was a gender gap in those new voter registrations, unlike anything that he had ever seen in past elections. Moreover, he explained it wasn't only a gender gap, it was also overwhelmingly Democratic and young women who were registering to vote, and it was not only in Kansas. For example, he explained in Pennsylvania, after the Dobbs ruling, new Democratic registrations were outpacing Republicans four to one. Over half of them, he told us at the time, 54% of them were under the age of 25, reiterating that young Democratic women are being engaged this year in this election. He found similar patterns in North Carolina and Ohio and Wisconsin, which, like Pennsylvania, also have competitive U.S. Senate elections this year. Also, in traditionally red states like Idaho, Louisiana, and Arkansas, he saw this spike in numbers. In the following weeks, Tom Bonnier was finally able to get a hold of not just new voter registration data, but actual individual vote history from that early August election in Kansas, and reports that that, too, offers some fascinating and perhaps unconventional insights about this year's elections. Joining us now once again is Tom Bonnier of DataSmart, a Democratic firm providing political data for campaigns and advocacy organizations. And he's also a lecturer at Howard University. Oh, Mr. Bonnier, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. It's great to be here. I, uh, Tom, you found that 56% of all ballots cast in the August primary election in Kansas, which included that abortion referendum, were cast by women. 56%. Let's start there. Looking back at previous elections, what does a number like that tell you? Uh, well, it tells us that what we had seen in the voter registration data mm -hmm. uh, leading up, as you talked about, and seeing that huge gender gap, you know, a lot of people ask the question, well, it's great that women are registering to vote. But are they going to actually vote? Mm -hmm. And this answers that question. That yes, that they absolutely voted. So, if you look at the previous primary, midterm primary in Kansas, mm -hmm. the gender gap was five point five points. So this is a gender gap of double, more than double what we've seen in previous primaries. And actually, women tend to turn out at high rate primaries. Generally, when you look at elections, because mm -hmm. turnout in this election, and yes, it was a primary, but. More people voted in this primary election in Kansas than had voted in any midterm election in the history of the state other than 2018. So it looked like a midterm electorate. Mm -hmm. Usually women account for somewhere between 51, maybe 52 percent of ballots cast in these elections. As you said, women accounted for 56 percent. Mm -hmm. That's a huge difference. That just doesn't happen in elections. We can go back and we can look at prior elections throughout the state's history. I haven't found an election 
in Kansas, and you know we, we're not going back a century. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it, it hasn't happened, mm-hmm. but I can't find one where women have accounted for this high of a share of the vote. So it was five. You said five point five percent back in 2018, the last midterm, and uh, I think you found that it's uh, the the gender gap is 12 percent or was 12 percent right. uh, this past uh, August. Does that, is there any way to tell, is, is that, obviously there's an increase of women, is there a decrease in male voters, or is this all accounted for by uh, just the increase in women? Yeah, that's the thing. It wasn't that necessarily, and I think, you know, maybe there are conclusions we can draw for what this means for the general, but, you know, this wasn't a case where there was one side where there was depressed turnout mm-hmm. and the other side was fired up. I mean, when you look at the overall turnout, over half the people who voted in this election were registered Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a state that's very Republican as it is. That's not shocking. But mm-hmm. what that tells us is, because a lot of the takes immediately after on election night where there was so much surprise, not just that the pro-choice position succeeded, mm-hmm. which was the no vote, but that it won by such a wide margin, almost yeah. 20 points. And there were a lot. There was a lot of early analysis saying, "Well, Republicans must have just stayed home. Yeah. You know, they weren't fired up about." Well, Republicans came out, and they came out, and they many of them, uh, and, and we would estimate somewhere between one in five to potentially as high as one in three registered Republicans in the state voted uh, for the pro-choice position. So when you talk about that gender gap, it wasn't that men stayed home. It's mm-hmm. just that women surged in turnout so far above and beyond uh, what we've seen in prior elections that they accounted for such a large share of the, the votes cast. Yeah, you found that over 20 percent of the Republicans voted for the pro-choice position on that ballot. The um, new uh, CBS YouGov polling that I was citing uh, finds abortion is a make-or-break issue for most women voters. Seven in ten women, seven in ten, say a candidate must agree with them on that to get their vote. That's higher than any other issue that was tested, and it's especially the case for women who want abortion to be legal. They find that abortion is now the top issue for Democratic women. Uh, how does that sync up with the numbers that you were examining in Kansas? Does uh, does that sound about right this year? Oh, that absolutely does. I, I think, if anything, we've been underestimating the extent to which this issue has engaged women in this election, and especially younger women. Uh, you know, when we look at the Kansas election results, we look at the vote history, we're seeing that you know, there was a big increase in turnout from previous primaries mm-hmm. overall, but the biggest increases were coming among yo- younger voters, especially younger women. Mm-hmm. And it speaks to exactly that question that you flag, that, you know, there's been, frankly, a lot of bad polling analysis out of there where people say, well, look, look at the polls. And when you ask people their most important issue to vote, most people are saying the economy mm-hmm. uh, and that abortion isn't the top issue. Well, a lot of it's how you frame these questions. Mm. And more important than a polling question, the point you made a moment ago, is the actual hard data of who's voting. Mm -hmm. Who's voting in these elections that generally are low turnout elections? And that really answers the question more so than a poll. And and you did, you made a, well, you found noteworthy trends, not just, as you note, among women, but also 
in younger voters overall, as if I'm understanding what, what your findings are, it wasn't just young women, it was young voters overall, and in Latino voters, let me hit, one, hit those sort of one at a time, what does the actual data uh, from, from the actual election, again, not a pre-election poll, but the actual election in Kansas, tell us about young voters overall this year, or can we only focus on young women? Well, that's that's perhaps one of the most fascinating takeaways from this election and looking at the vote history is, you know, we have to keep in mind the context that young people generally don't vote at very high rates in midterm general elections, Mm -hmm. let alone primaries. When you look at primary elections, they tend to be affairs that are only attended by voters generally over about the age of 50. Mm -hmm. And you'll see a tiny share of them being younger voters. I say younger. In that case, I'm talking about under the age of 50. Mm-hmm. Well, in this case, you look at voters under the age of 30 or even under the age of 25. I, I just pulled these numbers uh, just recently. Mm-hmm. Women under the age of 25 turned out at a higher rate than any group of men up until you get to the age of 55. Mm-hmm. We know that turnout is generally pretty perfectly correlated with age. The mm-hmm. older the group the higher the turnout rate, mm. but young women turned out at such a high rate that surpassed almost every group. But at the same time, younger men also turned out at a much higher rate than a lot of those other groups. Mm-hmm. So it's the issue certainly is engaging young voters, both women and men. There is a gender gap there, and younger women are more engaged, mm-hmm. but yes, younger men are getting uh, drawn out as well. And I will flag this, because yeah. I think this is important. Uh, you know, there was one public poll that was released on on this issue in Kansas beforehand. There was not a lot out there, but this one poll showed that it was, you know, a, I think a one-point contest. They showed it being very close. And so afterwards, you know, we have to ask the question, why did that poll miss by so much? Well, we can look at who they polled. The, yes. And they, they actually missed the youth vote by almost half. <laughs> they had younger voters at, I think, 12% of their sample. They ended up being... 21% of the vote, and they missed women. They looked at an electorate that was about half and half uh, men, women in their poll, and as, as we've discussed, it mm-hmm. was uh, much more heavily skewed. And so do, is that something that could be happening to the other polls we're looking at now? Possibly. Well, that, and I actually I want to get to I have a specific question on that. Uh, but before I get there, let me just underscore one of the points you made in, in one of your Twitter threads on this, that in the 2018 primary, voters under the age of 35 accounted for 14 percent of all ballots cast. I think that was just in Kansas. 14 percent. Uh, in this year's election, that increased to 21 percent. That is an enormous jump from 14 to 21 percent, uh, much like an enormous jump. You say it was going to be a one point race, according to the pre-election polling on this, turned out to be a, a nearly 20 point race. Um, sounds like these polls may be nowhere near uh, correct. In recent weeks, we've heard a lot about how Republicans have made gains uh, among Latino voters uh, back in 2020 that they hope to expand upon in 2022. And, of course, we've been told for years, largely by Republicans, that Hispanic and Latino voters, why they tend to be conservative, uh, even if they still vote in much larger numbers for Democrats. But... Uh, you were also able to glean something about Latino voters from Kansas data uh, data uh, when it came to the August primary as well, no? Yeah, and, and I, 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 every stat you bring up or every area you bring up, I get more excited because there's a <laughs> lot just in terms of, and I think anyone who 
studies election data has to get excited about this when you see voter engagement at such a high, high level. So mm-hmm. Latino voters <laughs> voted at a higher rate than they voted in any election other than the 2020 presidential election. More Latino voters voted than any of those previous elections. And when you look at those Latino voters who turned out in this August primary election, 62% of them were women. And the median age of those voters was 36. The median age of all other voters who voted in that Kansas election were 55. Even though it was a younger electorate, mm-hmm. it's still the electorates in general uh, are skewed older. And when you look at party registration, even like I said, that it's just over 50% of the voters who cast a ballot in that election were registered Republican. Among those Latino voters, they were plus 30 Democrat, meaning you had younger Latina Democratic women being engaged in this election in rates that are comparing to presidential level general election turnout. Again, that just isn't something that happens, uh, certainly not in what otherwise would have been a pretty sleepy mm-hmm. August midterm election. Which is sort of why I'm focusing on, you know, we don't spend a lot of time on the polling because, as I you know, mentioned, it's sort of it's a snapshot in time. It's not necessarily predictive. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of, of, of outliers in polling that may show one thing or the other. But what you have sort of been consistently finding based on the actual data that played out in Kansas and, of course, elsewhere across the country in uh, voter registration numbers is so strikingly different from uh, so much of what we have seen in previous elections and so much of what is being really reflected in the polling elsewhere. And you, you touched on this point, Tom Bonier. I, I want to dig down a little bit. These Kansas numbers um are do they show up in the polling elsewhere? In other words, is this uh, very substantive change in the voter turnout models that you ended up seeing in Kansas? Is it something that has now already been accounted for in polling models that we are seeing elsewhere? Have the pollsters adjusted based on what they have uh, learned in Kansas? Or is this particular model of, you know, highly unusual increases in women and young voters and even Latino voters? Is it something that the pollsters are not currently modeling for when we hear about, you know, their various forecasts on who's likely to win or retain control of the House and and Senate and so forth this year? If they have adjusted for it, I haven't seen it. Uh, You know, the fact is that I think we've learned the lesson from 2016 and in 2020 where the polls missed by a pretty substantial margin that, you know, polls can be useful, they can be impactful, and they can often be accurate, but they also have uh, significant flaws. And one of the biggest difficulties for a pollster is to figure out who's going to vote, Mm -hmm. because if you don't have an accurate prediction of turnout, then you can't have an accurate poll. And so when you have elections that tend to not vary much from year to year, and you can base your likely voter model in a poll on the previous election, uh, which is what they generally will do, then you're going to be more accurate. But when you have what we would call an outlier election, when something happens, like what we're talking about in Kansas, mm-hmm. where you just don't have a precedent for it, you're not going to find many pollsters who will do what they feel like is going out on a limb and predicting turnout that defies past precedent. You know, For example, I've been paying a lot of attention, as, as I imagine a lot of folks have, 
to the polling in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you've got the competitive governor's race there with Stacey Abrams. You've got the competitive Senate race there with uh, Senator Warnock. And last week, there was a flood of polls that didn't look good for Democrats. And mm-hmm. I dug into them. <laughs> and the first thing I look at is, well, what percent of their respondents are women? Mm-hmm. First one I look at, they had 49% of their respondents were women. Well, Georgia, on average, women account for 55% of votes cast. Uh, women account for a larger share of the electorate in Georgia than any other state. So what this poll was based on was the notion that women would be turning out at a lower rate in Georgia than the, relative to men than they ever have. Why? And, <laughs> why, would, why would the pollster, uh, do you want to name that particular poll? And why would they, I mean, they're not even matching previous number uh, numbers for, for uh, women turnout. Why would they decrease it in a year like this? Well, I, I wish I, I wish I could understand their psyche and why they did that. I wish I could remember exactly which pollster. It was one of the more reputable pollsters. There are so uh-huh. many there, and yeah. frankly, they're very good pollsters who have had good track records who are just doing some weird things this year. And these are things that they need to pay attention to. There was on the same day a poll by uh, University of Georgia and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that had similar issues, but there they were... Uh, they they produced a sample that was plus nine Republican. It would be more Republican by a factor of two than the electorate was in 2014 in Georgia, which mm. was a very good Republican year. Uh, and so there there's some weird things. I mean, all I can say is the most charitable thing I could say is when we consume these polls, we should see them all as a what if scenario. That this is what would happen. If turnout looked like the pollster thinks it will, mm. based on their sample, if you think it's plausible that after the overturn of Roe v. Wade and everything we've seen since, that women in Georgia will turn out at a historically low rate, then you <laughs> might believe that poll result. That's one scenario. I don't think it's a very likely scenario. I'm more interested in the polls that suggest, at a minimum, that women will turn out at the at the rates that they did in 2018 as uh-huh. a baseline. But realistically there's a strong case to be made that they'll turn out at a higher rate. But again, to your question, I think you'll have a hard time finding polls that actually are based on that prediction that women will be turning out at a higher rate than they did in the last midterm. So maybe that's going to be some source of bias. Maybe after this election we'll look back and say, how did the polls miss <laughs> yes. some Democratic surge? And th- that'll be the obvious answer. And then they'll adjust it in the next election, which is what happened. Because right. I've I've sort of been wondering, Tom, uh, as you know, this season over the, in recent months, I know that there was uh, apparently an underestimate uh, when it came to Republicans in the 2020 election. And I was wondering if pollsters are taking that into account in their models now. In other words, since they underestimated Republican turnout in 2020, are they increasing it in these year's polls? And uh, is that something that, well, certainly with Dobbs, that they could be getting wrong? But is that the way they would account for the apparent mistakes in 2020 to adjust the polling this year? Perhaps. Uh, we, we do have a tendency, unfortunately, in the world of, of politics and campaigning, and specifically in polling and analytics, to mm-hmm. be always fighting the last war. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've certainly seen that off the misses in 2016 and 2020. New York Times had an analysis recently where they said, well, here's where these races would stand if the polling error from 2020 repeats 
in 2022. And I, I guess that's a somewhat academically interesting exercise. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, was the source of error that was there, which they've all you know decided, one hand, we're not sure what was there, but perhaps it was because Democrats and liberals were just more likely to be home in 2020, therefore more likely to take polls because of the quarantine, and they were abiding by mm -hmm. these quarantine rules mm -hmm. more so than Republicans, which seems plausible. Well, if that's what you believe, there's no reason to believe that that would be present this time around. And in fact, there's a stronger case to be made that the polls are not only missing women voters, but also younger voters. As we've mm -hmm. discussed, what we've seen in Kansas, what we're beginning to see elsewhere, that mm -hmm. younger voters are more engaged. If that's true, then, yes, these polls will be missing uh, a significant chunk of the electorate that leans generally heavily Democratic. Tom, is there a way uh, to account, and, and I don't know if there is, if there's a way to account for it, if uh, pollsters account for it, but there's been a lot of states since 2020 who have passed new, what I call voter suppression laws. Uh, is, is there any way to account for voter suppression in, in this sort of uh, polling? Are those new laws taken into account as to how they might affect the electorate? And one of the reasons I ask is because I think it was in 2020, for example, I think there was, was it 17 toss-up races in the House and... Republicans ended up winning every single one of those races considered to be toss ups, which seems extraordinary to me. Um, is, is, and so is there any sense, is there any way to account for voter suppression laws that might affect some of those tight toss up races where, you know, just a, a half a percentage or two or two makes a big difference? certainly challenging to account for that in polling. I mean, we think about the fact that the polls aren't doing a great job in accounting for things that we can actually look at and mm -hmm. look at elections like Kansas and say women are certainly more engaged, so we should talk to more women in our polls. You know, the notion that they could account for changes in vote propensity based on these voter suppression actions by um, state and local election officials um, it's just unlikely. I think what we're seeing, you know, there have been some studies that suggested, well, these changes in voting laws don't actually have a voter suppression effect, because when you look at turnout before and after, there's not, you know, significant differences. And what that's ignoring is the fact that you have a lot of folks putting a lot of effort, a lot of energy, and frankly, a lot of money, a lot of resources into organizing in these states and localities that pass these laws just to get back to zero yeah. to be able to yeah. uh, at least dampen the effect of these voter suppression laws. And you're still seeing that happen. You're seeing in states like Texas where they've, you know, they made great advances in 2020 during the pandemic and then immediately rolled most of them back. And then some in cases where we're seeing college campuses now yes. being denied uh, early voting locations yep. and things like that. And so what happens is resources from Democrats, Democrats and progressives go into making it easier for those individuals to vote um, so that the effects seem minimal. But, you know, mm. to draw the conclusion that, well, these laws don't, don't make any difference is absurd and, and ignoring the effort that really shouldn't have to be spent. So, so no, I don't, I don't think it's likely that the polls take that into account. And then in the end, we just have to hope that the efforts that are in place to counter 
those voter suppression efforts uh, at least get us back to where we would have been had they not been in place in the first place. Ultimately, Tom Bonnier, uh, while it is good to know about all of these numbers that if if people follow, and I, I hope they do, they follow your um, uh, your Twitter feed at T Bonnier, T-B-O-N-I-E-R, and of course at Target Smart, um, some as we've been discussing, some encouraging numbers uh, that may not be reflected in the current polling. Ultimately, while it is good to know these numbers, I do worry, Tom, that it becomes so-called hopium for uh, for Democrats. Your firm works with Democrats, after all. Is there a concern that the that the public may get a false impression from what would seem, at least according to you, Tom Bonnier, to be some very encouraging uh, data? Do you have concerns about giving the wrong impression in that regard? I don't think we're there yet. I think we had uh, a, a, a public narrative that was, you know, based in a large part in reality that Democrats had no chance prior to the Dobbs decision. We Mm -hmm. weren't seeing a lot of Democratic engagement. Uh, We were seeing Republicans leading in most indicators, and Dobbs really changed things. But to be clear, hasn't changed things so dramatically that I think anyone could look at the Senate, the House, or any of these governor's races or important down-ballot races and say, well, Democrats are going to walk away with it now. All the different factors that were in place that would have led to a Republican red wave election, them being the party out of power, the gerrymandering, the voter suppression, uh, the historical precedent uh, for midterm elections. Uh, None of that's gone away. Hmm. All all that's happened is that there's energy now among Democratic and progressive voters that is building to potentially meet and potentially – overcome that red wave but we don't know we can't see those two waves side to side to know how big they are but we know there is a force that is building and um we'll really have to wait till election day to see if it's enough for democrats to hold on if democrats do hold on it would be one of the biggest upsets in electoral history and it would mean you know very narrow margin uh certainly in the house and almost certainly in the senate as well uh, and so I, I, I certainly hope that no one is seeing this data and thinking that it means that Democrats have it wrapped up and they can sit out because that is certainly not the case. Yes. Now that you have spent the last 30 minutes listening to Tom Bonier and I talk about all of this, please forget everything we just told you and do what you need to do. Uh, and help your, your, your neighbors, your friends, everyone else, help them to register to vote, help them to get to the polls, do what needs to be done, take nothing for granted. Though it is fascinating news, uh, Tom Bonnier is the CEO of Target Smart data, solution, uh, provide, uh, data Solutions Firm, providing political data for campaigns and advocacy organizations. You can find, as I said, him on the Twitters at T Bonnier and at Target Smart and, of course, at Target Smart. Com. Always fascinating talking to you, Tom. Uh, and there's still six weeks to go until November. We, we may bother you again between now and then. I'd love that. Thank you so much. Thank you, brother. Okay, and you know, like I said, I'm really not, I don't want to offer hopium, as I said, but I do find these numbers very interesting, uh, particularly as they don't seem to be included in everyone else's polling, at least if Tom is right about it. Now, I suppose this could be uh, those numbers could be something special only in Kansas. 
uh, or at least, you know, to a specific state constitutional amendment uh, on abortion rights, which may not result in the same sort of turnout everywhere else where the issue may not be quite as directly on the on the ballot. I see. But, um, you know, our previous conversation with Tom regarding the, quote, jaw dropping spike in new voter registration numbers among women and young voters and young Democratic women voters seems to suggest there could be something going on among the electorate, which is not yet being reflected in the polling. We shall see. Uh, I mean, why a poll of Georgia, as he noted, would include just 49 percent of voters being female? I don't get that. That's sort of beside me. So yeah. it's important to remember that, you know, the, the the point is that these polls that you hear about are only a snapshot of right now. But also they're only as good as the model and the the mix of voters of men and women, Republican and Democrats, uh, Democratic and independent that the pollsters use as their basis for that ultimate snapshot of that moment in time of the electorate. Yes, so hopefully we will find out whether voter engagement and turnout matches what the polls and the data seem to indicate. As I said, forget everything that Tom and me just <laughs> talked about. Yes, and it does get, require people actually turning out to vote. Get to work. Quick break, and we are back with uh, one more story here on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. may be already gone. You'll see what I'm talking about. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We have not discussed the disgraced former president and his many legal woes lately. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, but this one seems worth noting very uh, quickly as we head out today. From CNN last night, the newest addition to former President Donald Trump's legal team, Chris Keis, has been sidelined. Already from oh. the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation less than a month after he was brought on to represent Donald Trump in the matter. That, according to two sources familiar with the move, Kais is expected to remain on Trump's legal team, but he is uh, but is not is not leading the work related to the federal government's investigation into how the former president handled 11,000 pages of Documents, more than 1,000 of them marked as highly classified that were seized from his Florida home in August. The reason for, sh for the shift in Kais's role, however, remains unclear, according to CNN. But they say the, the move is notable because Kais, the former solicitor general for the state of Florida, was brought on to the team after a weeks-long search. Remember this? A struggle to find someone, anyone, who was willing to take on this case? Ah, yes. And then they found him, and now... They paid him a lot of money, paid too. Paid him a lot of money. Reportedly, he is now sidelined. His hiring came uh, with an unusual $3 million price tag supposedly paid in advance 
uh, raising eyebrows, according to CNN, among other lawyers on Trump's team, given the fact that the former president has a reputation for not paying his legal fees. Keis had been viewed among Trump contacts as a serious white-collar attorney and trial lawyer with Florida Chops. As I said, it's unclear why he has been sidelined, if in fact CNN is right about this. Keis left his uh, uh, large law firm that he had been with for more than a decade in order to take a job as a solo practitioner here for Trump. I guess maybe he doesn't care. He's got three million bucks in theory. So uh, take a couple of years off and I'm sure the old law firm will have him back if things don't work out with Donald Trump. I don't know why they wouldn't. Things always work out with Donald <laughs> Trump. He previously worked for uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and has also, by the way, won four cases before the Supreme Court. So he's a real lawyer, not like Rudy Giuliani or Sidney Powell or John Eastman or... The list just goes on and on. Uh, but of course, it's very possible all of this could be completely fake news. Trump spokesman Taylor Budowich told CNN, quote, Chris Keiss's role as an important member of President Trump's legal team remains unchanged and any suggestion otherwise is untrue. So there you go. Of course, everyone would believe what a Trump spokesperson I, I, says. I don't think a Trump spokesperson would just lie to a mainstream media news outlet. That makes no sense. That doesn't sound like not the Donald Trump I know. Anyway, we will see if that's true or not. Uh, I suspect he's probably not happy because that whole special master thing is not working out so well. Not so far. Uh, and the whole case is not working out so well. But, you know, it's a bad case because Donald Trump is a very bad man. Anyway, got to get out. My uh, thanks once again to our guest today, Tom Bonier of Target Smart, to our producer, Desi Doyen, and, of course, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download any or all of it for free at bradblog.com. We have no paywall there, none whatsoever. Why? Well, because we want everybody to be able to read the blog and to listen to the shows. And that is only possible thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us keep on doing whatever the hell it is we're doing every day over your public airwaves. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. That is it. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>